This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Our country is in danger, but not to be despaired of. On you depend the fortunes of America. You are to decide the important question which, upon which rests the happiness and the liberty of millions yet unborn. And as we renew our- the 1980s had arrived, and so had Ronald Reagan, the former Hollywood actor who, as president of the United States, was now the most powerful man in the world. The exemplar of freedom and a beacon of hope for those who do not now have freedom. To those neighbors and allies who share our freedom, we will strengthen our historic ties and assure them of our support and firm commitment. We will match loyalty with loyalty. We will strive for mutually beneficial relations. He was a new, more forceful American president that understood the threat the Soviet Union posed, and he planned on doing something about it. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. I am announcing today a plan to revitalize our strategic forces and maintain America. SDI, or the Strategic Defense Initiative, was also called Star Wars by the media, and it was designed to strike fear in the hearts of the Soviets, a weapon they did not have and could not stop. It will end long-standing delays in some of these programs and introduce new elements into others. And just as important, it will improve... Vincent Houghton explains. SDI, SDI doesn't cause the Soviets to collapse, but what it does is it demonstrates to Soviet leadership how far behind they are in technology. What SDI did and what scared the hell out of them was the fact that we, we thought we could maybe pull it off. And the reason, the reason the technology was so scary, it wasn't the lasers that were scary. It was the Soviets knew how to build lasers. It was the targeting systems. It was the, the idea that you could target a ballistic missile from space, which we could do. And they're like, there's no way in hell our computers can handle something like that. And so it wasn't necessarily the satellite from space using laser beams, the Star Wars aspect of it. It was a computer power aspect of it. It was the idea that we thought it was le- we could legitimately build the technology to allow us to do targeting, allow us the technology to put that in space, all those other things. And that was what essentially was the, the huge fear on the Soviet side was, they're that far ahead of us technologically. And we were at that point that far ahead of them technologically. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant US retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies. I know this is a formidable technical task. The Soviet rulers, the Politburo was convinced that Reagan was going to go on the attack. It was just a matter of when. You know, even though the sciences in the Soviet Union were really well developed, making something out of the scientific discovery, they weren't that good at it. 
Vincent Houghton explains how the KGB reacted to Reagan's moves. There's an operation that the KGB ran uh, in 1982 called Operation Rion. Operation Rion was the brainchild of Yuri Andropov, who was the KGB director, uh, who would later become the, the actual general secretary of the Soviet Union for about 20 minutes before he died. Andropov, for whatever reason, he believed that the United States was preparing a first strike, that the United States was going to try to win World War III in one fell swoop, that Reagan was this wacky guy who actually was going to start World War III, and he thought he could win it. So Andropov, at the time, convinced Brezhnev, and Brezhnev barely knew his own name at that point. He was near death. And when Brezhnev dies in 82, Konstantin Janenko takes over, and Andropov convinces him to kind of keep doing this. Ronald Reagan joked, who do I talk to in the Kremlin? I keep dying on me. And the joke at CIA was the Kremlin was doubling as an old folks' home in a funeral parlor. The leadership, whether they were being rational or sane or, or they were demented, really feared Ronald Reagan. Actually, so Operation Rion was ordered by the KGB. And the idea was it went out to all their embassies and all their officers around the world and said, look for particular things that will lead us to uh, warning that this, the Americans are about to start World War III, about to start a first strike. Before one of his trips to New York, Moscow gave Jack a new assignment under the code name Early. Jack was told to monitor a nearby military base for any unusual activity that might indicate that the U.S. was preparing for war. The Soviets were increasingly concerned that the threat of an attack from the U.S. could become a reality. I know I had discussions with folks in Moscow they were afraid that Ronald Reagan might want to accelerate the end of the world. It, it was actually towards the very end of my training in Moscow that uh, I was told everybody who was over there in the United States uh, had a task to watch an object. I wasn't told any others, I was told only one, but most likely military installations. The object, by the way, was uh, Earl Weapon Station near Red Bank in New Jersey at the shore. Now firmly entrenched in New York, Jack too felt the outward strength that America was projecting under Reagan. Though many Americans remained concerned about the escalating tensions between the two countries, most Americans had no idea just how fearful the Soviets were of the threat from the West. I was told to, you know, keep an eye on that weapon station to uh, determine whether there was unusual movement, maybe preparation for war. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Alden Ehrenreich. This is The Agent. I was on a one-way street. I needed to go to the United States. She could not be allowed to interfere with that. There was no turning back. It was clear that I was going to become Henry Van Randall. Soviet troops were all over the place in Afghanistan today. Neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. They were afraid that Ronald Reagan might want to accelerate the end of the world. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I created for myself an artificial dual personality. I had two of them. The spy job got in, in the way of my real job. I knew that the FBI would never find me. I had a dream one night. I think I need to look for him again. I need to find him.
Chapter 7, The Rising Tide I had my apartment in Queens, and I would, on a Saturday, I would go frequent. There was a singles bar on the Upper West Side I liked, where I knew some people. I'd sit there, smoke some cigarettes, and have a conversation. And There was this one moment, the back of the bar was mirrored. And I'm looking in the mirror, and I meet the eyes of the woman sitting next to me. I had not even noticed. And I went like, whoa. And then we both looked at each other, and we started talking. She had beautiful eyes, great blonde hair. And we started talking, a very intelligent person with a very, very attractive Spanish-Hispanic accent. Fluent, but I liked the accent. And while we were talking, she would touch me on my forearm, which is instinctive. You know, like the, it says without explicitly saying, I like you. My name is a little bit long. <laughs> my original name that's in my birth certificate is Luz Maria Graciela Aguirrebeña Peragalo Cerda. I grew up in Santiago, Chile, by the Andes Mountains. I am the condor. <laughs> this is where Jack and I meet. It gives me the chills because he totally connects with that condor energy from wherever it comes. In reality, you could say that I am a princess, you know, from Chile. The princess from Chile, you know, South America, meets the spy in New York at a bar, you know. It's like an encounter in the mirror for both of us, like, like, like electromagnetic. From that encounter in the mirror, we go straight to a, another table because we were sitting at the bar. And then there is a seven-hour conversation where our souls meet. He told me he was an accountant. I fell in love instantly with him. You know, I, I, I recognized him, let's say, right? told me about, you know, why she was in New York, that her mother is married to this rich Belgian businessman. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe there's some connection that I can make here. They lived in Washington, D.C. They host diplomats there. And minimum, there was, I was thinking about, oh, maybe there, here's an opportunity. We parted company, but before she left, she said, hey, listen, why don't you join us for dinner tomorrow night? Uh, and so the next day I showed up for, for dinner and I get to walk her to the hotel, and halfway down she says, I want to make love to you, just out of the blue. So we take a cab, we go to my uh, apartment, and uh, spend the night. It was a rainy morning the next morning. I had to somehow hide that I was a bike messenger. I didn't feel like talking about what I was doing. I made sure that she left before me. It was raining, so I put my rain gear on and got on a bike and rode to Manhattan on the bicycle and uh, started working. And, you know, the job as a bike messenger in the rain. I went back to Spain, and I'm telling my friends, guys, you're not going to believe this. I met a guy in New York, a fucking New Yorkian, <laughs> you know, who has the mind of a giant and the heart of a warrior. About a year later, I get a call, and it was her. She said, hey, I'm in Washington, D.C., why don't you come visit? There will be an event at my mother's house, and, you know, you're invited. 
Now I know I'm going to, to be at a place where I need to be really well-dressed. It was black tie, she told me. Well, I didn't own a tuxedo, so I went to uh, one of the most exclusive men's stores in Manhattan and bought myself a pinstripe double-breasted Giorgio Armani suit, the best suit I ever owned. I wanted to see the lady again, and it was an opportunity to, to maybe do something and make some contacts. It was a long shot. Uh, I tell him this is a black tie with the, you know, we have the guest of honor because it was, of course, with a piano event because people would come to my mother's house to play the piano. Pianists all over the world. These were like musical evenings, you know, that she did masterfully. The guest of honor is the attache of Austria. It was such a classy event, and I interacted with a bunch of consuls, vice-consuls. One was from Austria, and I held my own. I was doing okay. I fit. Oh, it was amazing. I had such a ball, because for me, he was my spy. Nobody knew that I was involved with him. <laughs> Except for my mother, you know, who had been there, you know. So nobody knew. And, and I, I throw him to the arena, you know? It's like, we both go into the arena. And it was the most delightful thing to see him interacting with everybody. He passed the test, man. I was having a ball. The event was a whirlwind of excitement for Jack. He was a bike messenger and he was an agent for the KGB, but no one needed to know these details. Near the end of the night, Luz Marie told Jack she planned on staying in America, this time for good. The night felt close to perfect to Jack. I knew she would come back within a year. So what did I do? I did what Jack Barsky always does. He grabs something and goes to the extreme. I studied Spanish like a maniac, the same way I studied English. I started out with a tape, and once I had the basics, I just read and I read and I read and I learned probably 10, 15,000 Spanish words. I'm always all in, and, and in this, Jack Barsky was all in. Albrecht Dietrich didn't exist. When I went back to Spain in that trip, and then the question came, but Luz Maria, you cannot transplant Jack to Spain. And let's be real, you cannot live in the United States not in New York, n not even in, in, in Washington, in spite of the fact that your mother is there. But it was so clear to me that I could not transplant him. And that was a huge decision that in so many ways changed, you know, the course of our lives. But at the same time, it helped him. And at the same time, I met the father of my two younger boys. I cannot keep Jack holding in this situation because it, it made me very sad to do the break with him, you know? She actually uh, wrote me a goodbye letter that she had changed her plans and she met a man and, uh, and so I had a good cry and that was the end of that. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. The center knew little of his personal life, but they were determined to keep him focused on his mission in America. The KGB was sending their secret agent back to college. I started looking into where I could go to college, what it would take. Obviously, it would have been great to get into Columbia University. Columbia Ivy League would have been too expensive. Not that the Soviets couldn't afford it, but it had to be within the means that I had. Jack enrolled at the City University of New York at Baruch College. The mix of students was very similar of what you found in New York City. Lots of minorities, people from all kinds of different countries. I chased after every pretty girl that I, that I thought I might have a chance to hook up with, and I failed every time. <laughs> I guess the, the age difference did make a difference there. First uh, semester, I speak with a counselor and uh, told her, well, I want to take accounting, microeconomics, macroeconomics, calculus, literature, and that's and, and one more, maybe chemistry. The counselor said, that is crazy. You, you will not survive this. Don't do it. Well, I said, what the I'll do it. And so at the end of the semester, I, I had A's in every one of them. So I'm talking to this young lady who had been sitting next to me in one of the lectures from Belize, very pretty young, young girl. I'm talking to her and says, look, you know, I, got, I got all A's. And I know I said that. I think I was just gonna, I'm just gonna ace the whole thing. Now it was out, I told somebody, this is, was my plan. So I, it's almost like once you, you make a commitment in front of somebody else, it's, it's harder to pull back. So now I really tried. And this is one of my last vestiges of cultural ignorance. I didn't have a clue what the uh, outcome would be. I just wanted to get all A's. Though he was in his 30s and much older than most of the other students around him, Jack soon found friendship. I'm Carl Schett. I came to the U.S. in 1981. I went to Baruch uh, in September of 1981, and met Jack, either during my first semester or second semester at the college. I met him in political science because he sat next to me, and and one day as I was opening the book, he said, wow, everything is highlighted. And he said, you cannot highlight like that, because that will mean that you probably need to reread the entire chapters anyway during your final or whatever test that you're taking. And I told him that I was not trying to highlight the important part. I was trying to highlight any word that I don't know. <laughs> so, so I became uh, a friend of his. And we took a few classes together, political science, uh, one of them, and then the other one I remember is calculus. So um, we were competitive in the sense that I thought that he was taking the class at the same time as I was in calculus, and therefore I said, hey, why couldn't I be as good as he is? So, so we, we kind of compete for the top of the class uh, in calculus. I was very competitive. 
Poe was grateful for Jack's assistance in helping him learn English, unaware of his friend's past, and that English wasn't even Jack's first language. Their time together became the basis of the essay Poe wrote that helped him get into law school at Columbia University. Then I wrote two essays mentioning Jack. Um, one was the, uh, the mission navigation to go to uh, Columbia, and then the other one was my law review application when I applied for law review at Columbia. Despite the age gap and their very different upbringings, Poe and Jack became good friends and pushed each other to be the top of their class. Out of the blue, Jack received some surprising news. And then one day I was approached by somebody from the, um, the dean of students. He wanted to meet me. And I go into his office and he said, congratulations, Mr. Barsky. Yeah, you did really well. So do you have an idea what, you, what the theme of your speech at graduation is going to be? I went like, oh, my God. I said, what do you mean speech? Well, you're the valedict- valedictorian. Now, I knew what that meant, but I never put two and two together that this actually having all A's will most likely make you at least a candidate for this. I was uncomfortable with this. Older, tall. And, you know, the whole idea was not to stand out as an undercover agent. So I tried to talk him out of it. I says, I don't know, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm not a good speaker. And why don't you give it to somebody, you know, one of the younger people who, who would appreciate it more? He said, well, you know, if you're really that uncomfortable, just write the speech and let somebody else read it. And there's my sense of integrity come in and says, I can't do that. So there you go. I committed to give the graduation speech, 10-minute speech, which I memorized from A to Z. It was my first public appearance. It was at the Felt Forum in Madison Square Garden. Held 4,000 people. It's huge. The excitement of becoming the valedictorian displaced his need for secrecy. Would he blow his cover in front of thousands of people? And there I'm standing. It was a hot day, and at the end of June, I had this cheap cap and gown. The, the cap, it moved a lot. But I'm giving my speech, and I, I didn't skip a word. You know, everything was fine. I didn't. And I betrayed my socialist ideology by ending the speech with the following sentence. Let's work on a society that we can all be proud of, where a smile is worth as much as a dollar. Not a bad one. Legendary actor Anthony Quinn gave the commencement address in front of the large crowd, and Jack's name was printed front and center in the Baruch College newspaper. As risky and foolish as it was to have paraded in front of the crowd, Jack convinced himself that no one back at KGB headquarters would find out. An active undercover KGB agent gave the valedictory at a U.S. business school. It's funny, but that was a danger point. It is just amazing that nobody got curious about this guy who's 12 years older than the rest of them, who aced the program, who may have a bit of an accent, and he did the whole thing in three years. Nothing. Jack had become more and more comfortable living in America. His life as Jack Barsky was altogether different than his life back home as Albrecht Dietrich. And Jack was not telling Moscow everything. The KGB needed face-to-face time with their agent. Despite the risks of being discovered as an illegal, Jack traveled back and forth from New York to Moscow every two years. BBC's Gordon Carrera explains. They did let them go back occasionally. And, and 
I mean, why would you go back? Why would you want someone to go back? Well, partly to check up on them, partly for their well-being, to make sure Jack's okay, partly to make sure you think Jack's okay and he's, he's still loyal and, and to know, to kind of keep that connection psychologically to the motherland. Or So I think psychologically it was important. And so, um, you know, you, if you're confident you're not being followed, then you can do things. You know, you can do meetings, you can, you can, you know, approach people, you can travel to Moscow because you're confident you've taken the right precautions and you're not being watched or you've not been followed. And you have to kind of almost have the confidence in yourself and in your tradecraft and in the tradecraft of those who are handling you that, you, you know, you are, as they say, black, you know, you're not, you're not known to the other side. Jack went back to debrief with the KGB. But he now also had a new reason to come back home. He was going to meet his son for the first time. I really can't tell you how anxious I was. I had no emotional connection to this child. Jack had longed to see his wife again and to spend time with their new addition. We spent quite some time at a vacation place within Berlin, near a lake. Matthias was a difficult child. In terms of sleeping or not sleeping, he was sick a lot. He sort of got in between me and Gerlinda in terms of closeness. We constantly were focused on the kid. I really did not bond with this one-year-old. I got up in the morning and I took him for a walk, but it was all pretty mechanical. I was doing daddy things, but not enjoying them. You know, it's a, it's a one-year-old. You can't talk with him yet. And to me, he was a stranger. I, I wasn't there at birth. It was pretty much the opposite of what I expected. The child actually put our, the, the relationship with Galinda in a different light. It, it wasn't, the passion was gone. Now it was more like, you know, this is what it's like to have a family. She said, well, you're not here, and I have the burden to, to deal with this child. He's very difficult, and he was. This was not a happy visit altogether. All that doesn't mean that I, at that point, I had mentally said goodbye to this family. I still loved Gerlinde, but, but not with the same passion. And she also had a focus on the child and not on me, right? So this is what happens when you have children. Before you know it, the baby takes your spot in the bed. I had lived still the life of a single guy who would date all kinds of ladies. We went out on a lake on a boat, a rowboat. And we were talking about the future and then Galinda said something prophetic. And it was not direct, but you could read between the lines. She indicated that she would expect me to have a girlfriend over there. You want to live a normal life. You can't live it like a monk. And she, she ruminated that if there was a competition, the one that's physically closer will win. And I told her, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. I, I did not go too much into detail as to what, what it's like to live single in the United States. But I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be back. I promise. That's the, the one regret that I can never live down is the fact that I promised her and I broke, that prom I broke a promise to the woman I loved till the end. Gerlinda continued to raise Matthias on her own, with his father only able to come home every two years. 
Each trip back to Berlin was a reintroduction of father and son. One time, Jack surprised Gerlinda with expensive jewelry and cosmetics he bought in Manhattan. And uh, so when I came home, you know, I had a whole bunch of stuff for Gerlinda, and I had nothing for the boy. So I said, gave him, you know, I think he gave me a teddy bear so I can give it to, to Matthias. And, and Matthias called me uncle. So that was an indication that there was no father-son relationship. We just, we really did not bond. I, I wasn't capable of bonding. I wasn't even trying because I sort of knew that I had to go back. That, that stung. But, you know, I had only myself to blame for it. But I didn't blame myself. I blamed the situation. So you rationalize that away. Jack was realizing just how difficult living two lives had become. He had become Albrecht Dietrich once again, but this time with his wife and son was difficult and fleeting. Once again, he was summoned by the KGB and headed on the long and exhausting road to New York City for another two-year stint. He had graduated valedictorian of his class at Baruch College and now focused his efforts on landing a job back in America as Jack Barsky. The center told me that I, that I should stay away from large companies because they do more thorough background checks and I should like try to work for a small company. I tried and I couldn't get any traction. MetLife was recruiting. They were right next door to Peru College. I was finally again in a, in a situation where I could, on a daily basis, do something creative. My intellect was hungry. My brain was hungry for this kind of work. The entire team was about 100 people, and they were all professionals, colleagues from all kinds of different countries. We had a Chinese fellow, Italian fellow from Sicily, a Cuban, a Russian, and a Russian lady, and another Russian, three Russians. Yeah, it was fun. We, and we, had, we, we hung out together. Uh, lunch was free. We would go downstairs in the basement and have lunch and talk. Jack also understood that this new position could potentially provide a certain level of access to thousands of customer records. And employees of armaments companies, military contractors. And I had access to the records of these people, the health records of possibly executives, decision makers. I could have extracted a ton of information for them to, to be useful, to target individuals. My name is Gerard Boo. I'm actually Chinese and Cuban, but I came from Cuba when I, in 1969, so I was just about to turn 15. Jack and Gerard were friends on the job, and there was always a competitive fire between the two of them. It was wonderful because especially uh, we were young. We used to have lunch all the time, go to Chinatown. We would actually goof on each other all the time. Uh, we would advise each other how do you handle the industry. So I used to tell him, you should always try to be the best, the best you could be. You know, uh, not compare yourself to everybody else, just do the best you could be. When we were young and working, it was all about uh, intellectual challenges. The industry basically was in its uh, infancy still. The competition was, was a good competition, it was like playing like a basketball game. Like you tell your friend, you're your best friend, you're such an asshole, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. That's the way that I used to tell Jack. Oh, we always used to go from Jack because Jack used to say that he could have been a model. We had a lot of fun. I'm telling you, we laughed so much, people used to complain about how much we laughed. So we, we goofed around and did research. You know, we were hungry, right? Uh, we were hungry to learn. 
Though it was the infancy of sophisticated information technology systems, Jack and Gerard did have access to sensitive information about hundreds of thousands of customers, and much of it was not secure. When Jack and I were the young guys working on a day-to-day with this information, they did not have this type of security. When we were actually working on these things, this, this, this stuff we touched every day, and none of this security was there. Despite these close bonds the team shared at work, Jack kept his private life to himself. I never heard about his wife in Germany or his son or anything like that. You know, you have to admire somebody that is able to keep such focus. And MetLife played a big role because in MetLife I felt it almost like I was back home. It was, you know, it was a paternalistic kind of company. They took care of you. Uh, you knew that if you started working there, they would, you know, you would pretty much retire from that place with a gold watch. It was a family. Everybody was nice. At that time, I wasn't in politics. I wasn't in management. So we were all friends. The band of brothers who did good things and got paid well. That felt like home. I really liked what I was doing. The whole idea of the evil capitalist system just sort of shrank, it melted away. It got to a point, you know, I was a, a highly regarded programmer. I had weekend duties. I was on call at night. So now it got to a point where the, the spy job got in, in the way of my real job. I don't think I noticed this explicitly when it happened, but my world got turned upside down a little bit. And now I was a, I was a programmer who loved what he's doing. He also had to spy. And that's when I started cutting corners. When I had the time to just compose a letter with secret writing and check for surveillance and mail the thing pretty much took most of Saturday. I didn't feel like I had most of Saturday anymore. So what I did when we got to that point, I made the letter on a Sunday night and the next morning I wouldn't do any surveillance. I would just go to an office building and put it in the mail chute someplace. What was really annoying, the, the Thursday night radio shortwave sessions. I was never available to do something with the guys on Thursday night. It actually got worse. The mantra was, every time I was back in Moscow, you have to have more contacts. Contacts, were you looking for contacts? And here I am, I have a, what was not a 9 to 5 job, it was more like an 8 to 7 job with on call overnight. When do I do that? Getting sloppy, that's not unusual, I understand. You know, if you operate for a period of time and nothing ever happens, you get the sense of invulnerability. Because you can sense from Moscow and from the KGB, there's, there's the nervousness of, is it, you know, what if this person, you know, turns? What if their values go wrong? How much can we tell them? How much can we trust in case they do? And what will the Americans know? So there's... There's, you know, there's a kind of tension there, but also they know they've got to kind of support this person, encourage them and give them kind of validation. And I mean, one of the things I've, I've learned from kind of writing about intelligence and looking at this is that that relationship between someone who's working undercover and their handler is incredibly complicated. That's BBC's Gordon Carrera again, author of Russians Among Us, about the illegals that arrived from the East and settled into an everyday existence in America. But with the illegals, it's, it's another level of complexity because they are 
that they're often having very little contact with with the center with their controllers you know often just by radio messages you know those people are under huge pressure and very isolated and i think that to me is one reason why they did in the end send out couples in some cases because then you you've got that person you can talk to about it and if your relationship works and survives that then you have got that that ability and it's not just the remote you know not just the voice on the radio but the you know message you decode saying go and do this or thank you for your last you know report um you know um it, it, it's more human than that and the human factor is is what it's all about but the gordon lonsdale case in the 60s is very interesting as well because he he has a wife and children who don't come out with him you know they're back in in russia and he has engages in multiple kind of short-term relationships in in london and he's quite capable of reconciling those two things he does appear to genuinely miss his wife and feel very strongly about her while at the same time doing things which most people would consider not consistent with um that having that kind of a, a relationship but in his mind it is and and in his mind it's also he can justify it sometimes by saying well this is part of my cover and this is part of what i do but he avoids getting in long term relationships because he you know that that would be difficult but it is that ability to kind of you know compartmentalize your identity and your relationships which some of these illegals did you know i don't know what a psychologist would make of that jack had spent more time apart from gerlinda and matthias than he had been together with them the grip of western culture was starting to take hold on him as he discovered the enemy he had been taught to hate might not be that bad after all he had started to form real friendships for the first time since his college days back in yena but the pressures from Moscow always meant putting the party over everything else. Jack was feeling isolated, and he was lonely. I was uh, now in my early 30s and alone, even though I was married, but, you know, my wife was not anywhere near, so... Young man looking for a female companionship. I put an ad in the Village Voice, and it looks like my world was shrinking because my focus was on the job I meet Penelope and that changed everything again next time on the agent and this guy was pretty honest he said we're falling behind the united states see what you can do and we had over 600 fbi agents assigned to the soviet division anybody who is not an accountant was assigned to one of the foreign counterintelligence divisions one day i i come home and there was signs of somebody having been in there who didn't belong what a sense of invulnerability i had acquired nothing ever happened to me nothing dangerous i said to her listen as much as i can i will take care of this child but i will never be a real father i really like the job i like my life in the us and i thought i had unfinished business the agent is a production of imperative entertainment in association with windjoy and is created written produced and edited by jason hoke narration by alden ehrenreich Executive producers are Jason Hoke, Jack Barsky, and Alden Ehrenreich. Sound engineering and additional editing by Shane Freeman. Our original score by Joshua Klebe. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to learn more about this story, make sure to read Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Entangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America by Jack Barsky. 
Have questions? Email us at podcast at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love this show, tell your friends and leave us a positive review. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.